Welcome to Dr. Oklahoma, a podcast that shines a light on uniquely Oklahoman health challenges and situations by chatting with integrous physicians who live here, practice here, and are willing to lend their time and expertise to all of our listeners. Everyone loves fall weather in Oklahoma, but along with it comes the beginnings of our yearly flu season. With us is Dr. David Chancellor, Medical Director for Infection Prevention and Control at Integris Health, to talk about how best to protect ourselves and our families from what can be a very serious illness. Dr. Chancellor, welcome to Dr. Oklahoma. Thank you for having me. It's flu season, it's here, but before we get into what we can expect this season, let's talk a little bit more broadly about the influenza virus itself. Describe it for us, exactly what is this bug and why has it been uh, so destructive on a global scale over time immemorial, probably? Yes, it's uh, certainly been uh, one of our biggest infectious disease issues throughout time, certainly as long as time has been recorded and probably before that. It's a virus, it's very fastidious. A lot of viruses aren't quite as fastidious as influenza, they're not able to survive as long. Uh, a lot of people get them, they get rid of them, and then they don't ever cause any trouble beyond that. But influenza has created a specific niche for itself through various uh, genetic modifications. It's very good at changing, so it, uh, it can change from year to year. It can change over time. There's more than one type, and so there's a lot of different factors that go into its ability to continue to survive and to continue to poke its head up year after year. So aside from the, you know, the damage that it does to society these days, talk a little bit about some of the, the mass outbreaks and the sheer numbers of people that have been affected over the centuries. Well, I think that um, probably the most famous one would be the uh, influenza outbreak in um, the early 1900s in uh, 1918 that spread through uh, the United States. It was an H1N1 virus, and probably about a third of the world's population became infected with it classically called the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, killed millions of people. Uh, we've seen a few pandemics even more recently. I think everybody remembers the swine flu epidemic um, that started in the Far East and then, and then spread across the globe. Uh, in 2009, we had a pretty busy flu season. We've got much better tools to, to deal with it now than we did in 1918, thank goodness but um, it still can be very, very uh, problematic. Well, let's talk a little bit about those tools and what level of protection they set us up for. So talk a little bit about flu shots and the flu shot as it is this year and why we need to get it and when we should get it. So flu vaccinations are available now. They redo it every year or they modify it every year. There are several different kinds of flu vaccinations available. There's the trivalent, the quadrivalent, the high dose not just flu shots, but they also have the nasal sprays. And, and it's recommended that you get that every year because it does change a little bit from year to year, kind of based on the characteristics of influenza that we're seeing circulating and the prediction of experts on what they think is the most likely to gain foothold in particular venues. They have conferences twice a year, or actually they have several times a year, but there are two big ones per year, one for the Southern Hemisphere and one for the Northern Hemisphere because we have different, obviously, uh, opposite seasons. Um, and so based on that, they'll try and come up with a formula and grow the appropriate virus in culture to facilitate influenza vaccination production and then mass production and distribution after that. It's very important. That's still the most important thing that we have to battle influenza virus. The medicines, although there are medicines now, they're not that great uh, and they are nowhere near as effective as influenza vaccination. So it still is important to talk to your doctor about what is the right vaccine for you and to go ahead and get it. Again, those things are out there. They're widely available now. You know, for the last several years, you can get them at your pharmacy, which is something we didn't used to be able to do. You can get them at all kinds of vaccination fairs, uh, churches, schools, businesses. A lot of businesses do them now. There's no shortage of places you can get the flu vaccination. 
if you decide to do it, which doctors would recommend that you do. I hear pushback occasionally from folks saying, I don't want to get the flu vaccine because it makes you sick. How many people actually do get any effects from the actual uh, injection itself or whichever form they take of, of the vaccine? So there are a number of different reactions people can have uh, to influenza vaccination. <clears throat> Probably the most common one that we see is, is just local irritation from having a needle stuck in your arm. And that's pretty rare. That overall, reactions are less than 5% of any ilk. It is not necessarily abnormal to feel a little bit of malaise after you have a vaccination, a little bit of fatigue maybe, even a low-grade fever. And that's the vaccine doing its job, which is to ramp up your immune system. As that ramps up, sometimes you can have a little bit of fatigue or tiredness or, again, a very mild disease. It doesn't mean you have the flu. It's not giving you the flu. It's just your body's immune system kind of doing what the vaccine is designed to do, which is give it a leg up on the, on the virus. So it's really an indication of the fact that it's actually working. Correct. What about for those people that say, you know, I get the vaccine, but I, I seem to get the flu every year. How does that work? And, and, and why does the vaccine seem to have varying levels of efficacy? So that's a great question. I think we have been spoiled with the success of some other kinds of vaccines. For example, hepatitis A and hepatitis B vaccines. Fantastic vaccines, darn near 100% effectiveness. And when they do work, they are very, very, very effective against those particular diseases. Influenza is a disease that tends to shift a little bit. It can change its colors. It can change its stripes a little bit between the time that we give the vaccine and the time that the virus itself actually hits the population. So it is possible that the vaccine can, quote, unquote, miss a little bit on terms of how exact it is, but it still is active against the main big groupings of flu. So what I kind of compare it to is if you have a vaccine that is targeted against a person wearing a sports coat and then that person shows up and they don't actually have a sports coat on, it might not be quite as easy to identify that person. Right. That's a terrible example, but <laughs> I think you got to understand what I'm trying to say is the vaccine can change its stripes a little bit. However, we and, and some types of the vaccine as uh, a little bit more inside baseball, but for example, the H3N2 type of, the, of, of influenza virus, which is the most common virus that we see in most flu seasons, the vaccine is not quite as effective against that as it is against, say, for example, the H1N1 strain or the influenza B strain. And that's for a lot of different reasons, uh, genetic, environmental, all kinds of different things. The other thing is we have to remember influenza vaccine only protects against influenza. Uh, the, the word flu is, is passed around pretty cavalierly in, in terms of lots of things that aren't quote-unquote influenza are termed flu, and that's what we call influenza-like illness, things like rhinovirus or respiratory syncytial virus, metanumavirus. There are hundreds of thousands of viruses out there and other illnesses that can masquerade as flu, even though they are not actually influenza. So a lot of people can have that. What we do know is even if you get the vaccine and it matches pretty well and you still get the flu, what is very, very clear is you are much less likely to get sick, right. to get like to the point that you're in a hospital or, God forbid, die, that that is much less likely if you've had the influenza vaccination. Right, right. Excellent. So how do we predict what this year's flu season will be like? For instance, you know, in, in the papers we've read recently that Australia had a bad season and that is somewhat indicative that our season will be bad here. How does that work? Why is it indicative? I mean, I can't imagine that the bugs come all the way up from Australia and invade America. So how is that predictor effective and how, how do we use that science to give ourselves some idea of what we're in for? 
Well, again, because the southern hemisphere has uh, the, their winter opposite us, and so their winters during our summer. And actually, the viruses do kind of spread around, especially now with world travel. People are flying back and forth and traveling back and forth between these really very different, very isolated areas that, that they're able to pass that virus to new cohorts through those kinds of uh, phenomena. So it, it is probably the same viruses that are coming up from the southern hemisphere, obviously Australia being the southern hemisphere, but South America, um, what have you, Asia, parts of Asia. Flu is not quite as common in Africa because of the climate there, but still we can see all of those from the southern hemisphere coming up to the northern hemisphere. And again, the way they do that is the World Health Organization, or the WHO, will um, convene these huge conferences with all these really smart influenza people who know a lot more about influenza than anybody else in the world, and they'll kind of talk about what they think the components of the vaccination need to be to combat what they're seeing and what they predict will be more likely to spread. So, for example, some types of influenza are probably a little bit more likely to spread than other types because they're more fit or because they're more capable of withstanding travel and, and um, migration. Right. And they'll use all of those information, lots of different informations uh, based on the genetics of the virus, based on the attack rates, based on the illness of the people that were infected with the viruses. All of these different things will go into deciding whether or not to put that particular strain into the vaccine uh, recipe. So we've had our flu shots. What do we need to do to maximize our chances of not getting sick? How do we get through our day both with our family and then with work or with wherever we happen to be. What are the best practices as far as avoiding the bug? That's a great question. Um, vaccination is only one part of the armamentarium against the influenza virus. It's the most important part probably, but hand washing is still an important thing. Influenza is transmitted via droplets, so it can be on people's hands. It can be on their mucosal surfaces like their nose and their mouth. They can cough it out. So we recommend good hand washing. Alcohol and hand sanitizers are are excellent CHG hand sanitizers or chlorhexidine gluconate hand sanitizers. Anything that is rated for those sorts of things is excellent to have around in your house. And now they come in nice, tidy little packages. You can keep it on your belt loop. You can keep it in your purse. You can keep it in your car. We asked our church to put them in all the pews. So there's a lot of different things. It's easier to wash your hands than it used to be when you had to find a sink and a paper towel roll. So Also, one of the things I really uh, encourage people to do is what's called the vampire cough. Try not to cough into your hands if you do have an upper respiratory illness. Because you've got to remember, a lot of people who are passing flu don't actually know they have the flu. Flu is still one of the most common causes of the common cold. So it doesn't necessarily have to result in shaking, chills, and fever. People who just kind of have a quote-unquote head cold can have influenza. So when you're coughing, what we call the vampire cough, where you kind of cough into the crook of your elbow or sneeze into the crook of your elbow, is also a pretty effective way of trying to keep it from spreading all over the place. We don't really recommend necessarily that people wear masks uh, all the time, but you might see that when you show up to your doctor's office, they'll have a little kiosk out front or a little sign out front that says, if you feel like you're having a head cold or a cough or shortness of breath or fever, maybe put on this mask when you come into the waiting room and see your practitioner to try and prevent the spread that way. There's a, a few different things we can do in that regard. What about masks for our own protection? Is that worthwhile? Is, is there enough airborne virus for us to be concerned enough to actually wear masks in certain situations? Um, not yet. I mean, we, we don't recommend it for everybody. There may be some populations that it would be recommended for. For example, people who have pretty severe lung disease, who an influenza diagnosis would be pretty devastating. People who have advanced COPD, people maybe... Uh, 
a lung transplant patient. But as far as for, for the general population, it's not something that is currently recommended routinely across the board. So let's take the situation of actually having caught the flu. And, um, you know, we've been unlucky enough to catch it. What are the best things to do to survive the, the worst of it and get back on our feet as quickly as we can? Uh, that's a great question. Most cases of influenza will be pretty mild. Things like acetaminophen and hydration, maybe some um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, things of that nature would be perfectly appropriate to use in that situation. Just kind of ride it out, so to speak. Occasionally, people will be severe enough that they need to go see their doctor. They're really feeling bad. There are influenza medications available on the market. They really only work in the first few days of disease. So if you've had disease, if you felt bad for five or six days, that medication is not really going to work for you. Even in the cases where people get to their practitioner within the first day or two, the medicines are not terribly, terribly effective. They may reduce the duration of symptoms by a half a day to a day. So it's not something that I routinely throw out to everybody who has a diagnosis of influenza. A lot of people, it's just kind of routine supportive care, just like your mom used to do when you were a little kid. What would be the signs, though, that that we need to get to the ER? I think if you're having significant problems with shortness of breath or a really intractable fever that you're not able to control, those would probably be two of the main things. I've been focusing on the respiratory system. It can cause other diseases rarely, uh, like what we call an influenza myositis. Or if you're having altered mental status, it might be an indication that there's even a meningitis, which is exceedingly rare, but, but has been reported out there. Those would be the main things. If the fever is just not going away or if uh, you're having a lot of shortness of breath, I think those would be the two main things that would, that would drive me to seek attention. The vast majority of people who are hospitalized or die from influenza are people who are older, that's the number one factor. Over the age of 65, tend to have a tougher go with it. And people who have pre-existing lung disease. I'd say the vast majority of people are in those two cohorts that really end up getting sick, sick, sick from it. Um, it doesn't happen often. You will hear about cases, you know, where a, a perfectly healthy young person contracts influenza and dies. And that's true. It happens. And it's, it's, it's awful to watch. But the vast majority of people who have severe disease, severe enough to land them in the hospital, or weeks, like you're talking about weeks and even months in the hospital, are people who have a lot of health problems before that. All right. Excellent. Dr. Chansom, thank you very much. You bet. Anytime. And to our listeners, join us next time, where we'll be busy getting a doctor's advice on how to stay healthy so we can continue living and loving life in our great state, right here on Dr. Oklahoma. Dr. Oklahoma.